Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Clearly, as far as they were concerned, given that Manock had um, decided that this was a wrongful death, um, he was the motive, and um, that's all they needed. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part two of the story of Henry Keogh. In 1994, in Adelaide, Henry's fiancée, Anna Jane Cheney, was discovered by him dead in the bath of their home. Henry would later be arrested and found guilty of her murder. It's a crime he has always maintained he's innocent of. At the end of our previous episode, Henry talked us through the moment his legal counsel had informed him that he would likely be arrested any day now, and charged with the murder of Anna Jane. It was now just a case of where and when. What's, what's that like, hearing that from, from your legal team, saying that, that they feel an arrest is imminent and it's, it's going to be for murder and that, that must be an extremely stressful and horrendous thing to be oh, told? You can't believe it, uh, Jack. Um, you think, is this a dream? Is this really happening? It's, it's just surreal. You're already feeling disconnected to the world and then just another level seems to be uh, coming your way. You know, as I say, I speak to men and women who are incarcerated now and have been incarcerated for murder and they talk about their innocence and I always think about it from my point of view, how frustrating and how infuriating and, and stressful and all the rest of it, it must be to know that you've done nothing wrong but then it, to be completely out of your control. There's nothing you can do about it. You're going to be arrested and you're going to be put in jail and accused of this crime that you know you haven't done, but there is just no way you can, I, I don't know, it just, I, I don't know how you can even go through that and, and not just lose it. You don't really have any choice. I suppose the, the, the most overwhelming emotions that I, I felt were, like you said, powerlessness um, and just a sense of isolation because um, all your means of, staying in touch or, or contacting friends, family, or even your lawyer are now lost to you. 
you have no access to anything, no rights other than um, the ones that they're prepared to um, observe or give you, even if you're entitled to a phone call or like that, something like that, to uh, alert your lawyer or whatever. Well, it'll happen when they're good and ready. Yeah. And that's it. It's all about control. Yeah, exactly. Henry would do the only thing that he could, just go about his day-to-day life and await the inevitable. And much like his lawyers had predicted, the police would swoop at the most inconvenient of times. So, so talk me through the 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 moment that they arrested you. Was it on a day that, or a time that they most inconvenient? Yeah, it was a it was a Saturday morning or lunchtime. Um, I was at the um, um, basketball stadium watching my uh, my kids uh, play their Saturday sports, and I had noticed um, a couple of cars following me. Um, I don't know whether they did it, obviously, to uh, see if they could get me to... Uh, Panic. ...do a run or whatever, yeah. or just keeping a, a clumsy close eye on me. And then when I got into the stadium, I would see two guys you know, in plain clothes, but, I mean, they just didn't fit in, so yeah. it was obvious um, who they were and what they were, what they were there for. And um, I said to my... Um, then ex-wife, um, look, it looks like I'm going to be arrested. Um, I'll stay back here. Um, you guys will all, all leave and go home um, because I didn't want um, my kids to have to have to have to observe that. So I waited until um, they'd all um, um, made their way home, off off to go home, and um, went to walk out by myself and. Um, got intercepted by um, a couple of detectives. Um, they said, we want to ask you some questions. And I said, Look, on legal advice, um, um, I've, I've got nothing to uh, nothing to say. And they said, in that case, then um, we're going to arrest you um, on suspicion of murder and handcuffed me and led me out to um, uh, their car. I mean, to choose that particular moment and time is obviously a calculated thing to do. Yeah. You know, are, are, yeah. your, are your kids sport, lots of people around. It seems like it's ultimately to create the most sort of embarrassing, stressful, awful mm. situation. I mean, they could have chosen to do that in the early hours of the morning before you'd even yeah. left the house, yeah. but, but they waited until you'd gone to your, your kids sport. I'm just grateful that um, my girls didn't have to observe to that. witness it. Yeah. So you you're arrested and obviously taken to to the police station where you I'm assuming you're read read all your uh, bits yeah, and pieces. Yeah, I was brought up into brought up to an interview room. A camera was set up. A series of questions were asked asked of me, and um, contrary to um, you know, what I've been doing before, where I just sort of you know, answered anything and everything, um, this time I just followed instructions and they said, look, um, um, I declined to answer on legal advice. And um, I think that went on for about maybe 15 minutes or so. And they realised um, they weren't going to get um, anything out of me. Um, and so I was then sort of taken away and formally charged, fingerprinted, photographed. That whole 
situation, that being fingerprinted and, and the photographs and all the rest of it, I mean, do you just feel like you're... It's, it's like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. You, you, you've seen it so often on TV or in the movies or you read about it and uh, it's just you know, a scene. But then when you're actually in it, it just doesn't feel like you're, you're um, the actor in it. It's just bizarre. So, I mean, in the United States, obviously, where the show main, our show mainly focuses, it's, you know, people get arrested and they get taken off to these giant places. They call them jails there. I'm assuming here, it's, it's obviously, it's different. We, are you just in a, in a cell in a police station? No, here, um, I was taken to, uh, then it was uh, police headquarters in, in, in town. And uh, most police stations have got um, holding cells. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, Adelaide was no different. In fact, they had a couple of levels of cells I suppose they have lots of drunken disorderlies and assaults and all that sort of stuff to contend with on at nights and on weekends. So there's plenty of room at the inn, as they say. Yeah. Um, I was brought down there. The section that I was in, um, perspex wall with just a, basically a, a steel bed and um, a steel uh, toilet, no paper, and there's cameras outside. And even though you might have to go and... Um, relieve yourself or empty your bowels or whatever it's in front of the camera no toilet paper you've got to, you have to buzz up for that and um, when they sort of passing through some paper it's like a sheet at a time it's uh, begrudging the bedding you don't have during the day you only get that late um, of an evening and that's usually stained with vomit or piss or, or what it's, it reeks um, and you have no shoes and it is freezing in there. It really is. I didn't understand that. I didn't realise that you didn't get bedding at all until the evening time, so you've got absolutely nothing in no, there whatsoever. No. Well, I guess they don't want you um, uh, sleeping the day away, or if you do, uh, you're going to have to do it in the cold. And, uh, you know, no shortage of people in there who uh, you know, suffering effects, you know, coming down from drugs or um, yeah. alcohol with one guy. Yeah, the DTs for a day and a half, he was yelling nonstop. Another guy was coming down from heroin and he never stopped howling and wanting to say he's sick and he was dying and, and nothing you could do about it. Emery would spend a total of 10 days in this particular holding cell at the police station where he had a total of two showers and very limited access to communication with the outside world. There was no discussion of bail at that, at that stage for you? had one visit from lawyers and um, they said um, they would um, they would ask for it but um, normally on a, on a murder murder charge uh, it's very rare that um, that's granted so 10 days you spent in that joint minimal contact you didn't get to speak to any family or anything like that in those 10 days um, got to see um, my dad and my brothers once in that time and what what, what was that like seeing them when you're in that situation <clears throat> heartbreaking. In the United States, where OMR is mainly focused, they have jails. These are holding facilities where men and women awaiting court appearances or sentencing are housed until such time as they are either bailed or sentenced, where they are then sent off to prisons to begin their sentences. Here in Australia, these facilities are called remand centres, and this would be Henry's next port of call. He says... Although not the nicest of situations compared to where he'd been the previous 10 days, anything was going to be an improvement. 
um, got moved to the remand centre. The only saving grace is that having started at probably the worst accommodation there was. Mm. Um, Everything was going to be a bonus. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was an improvement. Yeah. So that's the only thing um, you, you could say about it. Um, the food there was uh, sort of horrendous. You know, so you'd get um, usually like a some sort of hamburger or whatever, or pies and parsleys, and they were either sort of um, cold um, and greasy or hot and greasy. Um, and one time I, I had a, um, a hamburger given to me. It had been reheated in the microwave so many times the plastic, the styrofoam, had fused to the bun. So how old are you at this stage when you've been when you when you're in this situation? What what, what, um, what age were you? I think I was 38, 39. 38, 39. So obviously never been to prison before or anything like that. That must have been in, in itself an extremely <laughs> stressful, daunting prospect. Yep. What was the first moment for you like walking into that place? Do you remember? Well again, everywhere you go, it's like you you have to be it's like you go to the beginning of the conveyor belt again. You've reprocessed. Um, you've got to give a whole heap of uh, information, uh, the same information you've already um, given, um, and then you're strip searched, and then you're given uh, told to have a shower, um, and then you're given ill-fitting clothes. Then you go and see a nurse who asks if uh, if what what medical um, standing medical conditions you've got, what meds you may be on, um, whether you've got any allergies, um, are you feeling suicidal, um, do you have any special dietary requirements? Um, not that that information is going to get uh, <laughs> much um, joy. Um, and then, uh, and only then, after that, would you would you move or uh, sort of sent off to whatever accommodation when you're going to be housed in for a while. But most of the time you're just in um, one large holding cell, which could be anywhere between um, 10 and 20 men. Um, You're all just sitting around waiting to be called up. Um, One toilet that's usually backed up and putrid. Never having been in trouble before, Henry had never experienced anything like what his new reality now looked like. Thankfully, he says that back in the early 90s, prison overcrowding wasn't quite the issue that it might be today, and he spent the majority of his time in a single cell. Although there was one occasion that he was told he'd be getting a cellmate. Back then, in in 94-95, prison overcrowding wasn't quite um, too too bad. It was just starting to get um, uh, a little bit uh, sort of busy. Um, and for probably 95% of that time, I had a single cell. They gave us um, an undertaking that anybody who was up on a serious charge or um, was facing a long time um, there wouldn't have to be doubled up. The cells weren't big to start with. The, what they were doing was, because of the growing uh, pressure on, on, on cell space, they were converting a lot of singles to doubles with bunk beds. I had been told once uh, that, well, you're going to have to double up. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to. And the alternative I had was to uh, go up to um, solitary, which I thought, well, that can't be that bad. But there was um, one of the guards there said, look, Henry, I guarantee you this will only be for two nights at the most. And then as soon as the next single cell becomes available, 
I'll, uh, I'll fit you in there. And he was a decent guy, so um, I took his word at it. And when I saw the guy who was going to be my cellmate, I nearly had um, um, a bowel movement. Um, he was like, he was built like Chief from um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Seriously, he was huge. Um, long, long hair like um, like uh, the Indian guy too, and um, but he turned out to be okay. He was a he was an armed robber from uh, Melbourne, and um, we just ended up talking until about three, four o'clock on both of those mornings. And you know, he was actually an okay cellmate. Henry would spend around eighteen months all up in the remand centre as he went through not one but two trials. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Henry will talk us through trial number one. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about the the first the, or the lead up to the first trial. So at some point, I'm assuming you you get discovery and and you find out what the case is against you. So mm-hmm. what what's that? What, what have they built against you? Um, well, um, they're saying that um, my motivation was financial. They said that I had opened all these um, insurance policies without Anna's knowledge, but that obviously wasn't the case because her brother had testified to the fact that she knew um, the the premiums were going in. See. When I was at State Bank, um, I don't know if you are familiar with the, the history of um, Adelaide back then, um, the bank had ran into a lot of um, 
troubles with its lending book. It was just very uh, sort of uh, sort of very sloppy with its uh, lending criteria, and they ended up with a uh, a debt of three billion dollars. Um, yeah, not millions, billions, and that got bailed out by the uh, the state government. And in order to uh, try and cut some of their costs uh, and their overheads, they just started uh, retrenching people wholesale. Um, you know, people from a whole department would be called in. Maybe one person might be uh, still have a job, and the other twenty or, or thirty gone. A lot of people end up on the redeployment list, and um, I was one of them. And I expected that you know, my time at the bank was uh, very um, limited because I had no formal banking qualifications or um, or skills um, other than just being um, <clears throat> in sales and management and, um, in, and financial planning, not something that um, they would be in great need of. And so I thought just a matter of time. And so at that stage, I decided that I was going to basically re-enliven um, my own independent uh, financial planning um, uh, business. And so I started uh, reactivating um, my uh, insurance agencies with a number of um, insurance companies around uh, the place. And one of the first things they do is they say, okay, write policies on uh, yourself, on friends, on family, and that sort of stuff. And and that's what you do to get things going. And then they um, refer other people on and so that's what I started doing, um, myself, my family, Anna. And back then, the commissions that were paid on the premiums were often quite high. Mm. And in many respects, it would actually pay for the policy in the first year. Mm. And so it became a sum zero game in terms of no extra, or certainly not a lot of money out of our pocket. And so we decided that, okay, we'll do that. Anna was busy. I was busy. I made the mistake of, and so she said, look, just do it. And I just did her signature. But she knew all about it. The fact that the signatures uh, were done by me, and they weren't even good copy. They weren't even an attempt to copy. But clearly, as far as they were concerned, given that Manok had um, decided that this was a wrongful death, um, he was the motive, and um, that's all they needed. So the case against Henry was based on this apparent financial motive. As Henry stated, there were a couple of insurance policies against Anna Jane's name. Policies he says that she was well aware of, and in fact her brother would also state that this was in fact the case. Nonetheless, the police have their motive and their evidence of a murder would come from Dr Manock. At that stage, he was South Australia's chief forensic pathologist. Now, if you're yet to listen to episode one of the story of Dr. Manock, I would highly recommend you heading back an episode and listening to that so you get a full picture on just how Dr. Manock came to be in his position and just how incredibly absurd some of his past findings on cases had been. And of course, we will have part two of the Dr. Manock story coming out for you this Thursday. The prosecution also would bring two other witnesses to the stand against Henry. Witnesses, they stated, were his former lovers. So did they have anyone, you know, any witnesses to, to get up against you, you know, characterizations type of stuff? Or? Yeah, two women who um, claimed uh, to be uh, in a relationship with me at various um, points in time. One was a, a friend from the bank. I thought she just had a number of emotional problems um, relating to the death of her father. 
and and the fact that she'd been up had a bit of harassment from fellow workers at um, at the bank and you know i was just trying to act as there as a bit of moral support for her and she read more into that than um, than there really was there was no physical or sexual relationship um at play there with with her i can't identify her because she has the benefit of a um, a gag order on, on identifying her as does the other woman um the other woman there was a bit of overlap between uh, her and um myself and and anna because even though anna and i were very well matched and um, there were times when i was concerned that she was nine years younger than me and that i thought she would probably want some children at one point in time i didn't want to have any more children primarily because i uh, thought that that would just be an extra strain in terms of um, the emotional impact on my daughters who are already had yeah. feeling that dad's left us he obviously doesn't care about us anymore yeah uh, he's, he's got his new family, family. yeah 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 and, and i didn't want to put them through that and so anna and i had a couple of um, instances of when we we're on off in terms of uh, the relationship and it was in in those sort of intervening periods that um i met this other i mean i knew her through work as well she was a client sorry, i was a client of hers rather i should say and um we'd had um, a temporary short short-lived affair but of course when you start taking a helicopter view of this and you look at it through the lens of oh well, here is he's playing the field especially if if two people are saying it, and uh, even though it's only one, um, it just doesn't look good. And so um, the cards just keep stacking up against you. What was the point in getting these women up? Were there, there were no claims of any sort of aggression or anything like that? No, no, no nothing like that at all. Nothing uh, other than um, character slur. It would appear that the prosecution were looking to show that Henry was in no way in love with Anna Jane. How could he be? He was clearly dating multiple women and playing the field. His interests in Anna Jane were supposedly just financial. So the case was built against Henry and his very high-profile trial would begin. Numerous witnesses would take the stand for the prosecution, including, of course, the chief forensic pathologist, Dr Manock, who would come with his theory of just how Henry had committed this crime. Obviously, they, they had a number of people get up on the stand against you, including this medical examiner. So his claims were that Anna had drowned in that bath, but he believed yep. it to have been a, uh, obviously, you had caused that. He said that I had um, grabbed her leg, lifted it up, and pushed her under at that stage. Now, Anna was a fit young woman. We both trained. We, we had a gym at home, and there was a forensic anatomist who uh, gave evidence. I'm not sure if he gave evidence in both trials. Uh, he was certainly in the second trial. Um, and, he, and he testified that it was impossible for someone who had um, just using their arms to combat, to compete with the, um, the leg muscles, particularly from um, so someone who's fit. Um, he said it was just physically impossible to do what um, Manock was saying. Um, also, there were there were no um, struggles, signs of a struggle at all, uh, which there would have been. Um, and he said that it couldn't possibly have been a slip and a fall, and Anna had rendered herself unconscious because um, when he performed the autopsy, there was no bruising or other marks on the brain, which he said ha would have to have been there 
if someone had knocked themselves out. Well, no one else had ever said that in the history of uh, pathology, but because this guy had um, uh, been basically in that position for something like 20 or 25 years, had done 10,000 or so autopsies, uh, he was deemed to be um, uh, um, the be-all and end-all and uh, virtually unchallenged. Henry himself would also take the stand across two days to give his own testimony. That situation in itself, again, surreal experience. You know, you're uh, you're on trial. How long did that trial last for? Uh, Ten days. Did you get up on the stand and testify? Yep, yep, I did. The accused is under no pressure to, even though my lawyer said that it was my call. Um, they strongly urged me to do it, and I had no problem with that, um, to do it so that I got a chance to give my version of things and they got to see me as a person rather than just this demon that had been portrayed for them in the media. And it turned out to be like two and a half days in the box. And the hardest part of it was the fact that they will continually go back over information and they'll ask double barrel questions or triple barrel questions and you're tired, you have a headache, you haven't slept well for you know, days if not weeks. And it gets confusing when they when they ask double barrel questions at the least, and you don't know whether it's a trap or what. And they keep going back over the same same ground, and it's harrowing because you know that um, whatever you say is going to be analysed and torn apart. And if you make one minor slip, ah, got you. But that doesn't seem to apply equally to. Um, other witnesses. It doesn't matter what a person says in their written statement. They can change that completely and utterly And when they give evidence in court. It's the sworn testimony verbal that seems to carry more weight. And the fact that they might have changed the uh, description of someone or the date or the time or anything like that doesn't seem to make much difference to the defence when it comes to it because, I mean, you just get steamrolled. You know, the, the court seems to give them so much latitude when you're the accused and um, you depart from what you might have said earlier, you know, it becomes almost like incontrovertible evidence. So I just want to set the scene. Let's imagine for a moment that you are on trial. You're on trial for murder. A murder you know you did not commit. You're sitting in a courtroom. The rest of your future is in the balance. You sit there while people get up and say things about you that you know are just not true. A medical examiner tells a room of complete strangers details about how you killed someone. Details you know are just not true. It just did not happen. Do you think that you could just sit there, stay completely quiet while these things are said about you? Well, you better, you better stay quiet and you better not get angry because that will only go against you. You have an outburst of anger, anger brought on by utter frustration of your innocence and all that jury and that courtroom will see is a person with a temper. Well, that doesn't look good, does it? So your legal team advises you to stay quiet. Don't react. 
and just listen. Well, that's exactly what Henry did. And guess what? That made him look bad as well. I got accused of um, being in too much in control. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. Uh, if, like you say, you get up and you're sort of, a, oh, yeah, of course he's going to say that. Um, but then if you are controlled, which is what your lawyers tell you to do, say, look, do not react to things that get uh, said by other witnesses. Don't go off at the don't go off at the judge if he or she says something that you don't like. Um, you have to be controlled and um, sort of respectful. And then the media straight away yeah. like shows no sign of you know emotion. Yeah. <laughs> You're like cold and um, callous individual. Um, how do you win? Yeah. You can't. You have one minute remaining. And that's all we've got time for. But coming up on our next episode, Henry's first trial comes back with a hung jury and he would in fact be given bail. But it's not long before he heads back to court and would get a very different verdict. Because uh, by then, uh, I was sort of braced for it. Hopeful, but braced for uh, the bad news. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Listener.